When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had left the Sadducees speechless, they met together. One of them, a legal expert, tested him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for their interpretation. I am well aware that Tina Turner was singing from what appears to be a wounded, perhaps even jaded heart, when she made popular the hit song that asks the probing question, what's love got to do with it in 1984? But her haunting question could well ring true when it comes to an honest examination of the Christian faith. What does love have to do with our faith? In one word, everything. Absolutely everything. No, that would be two words. If only one word could define it for us with clarity, with you know, precision as to exactly what it means and what it looks like to truly love God. But how in the world are we to understand loving God? I mean, how can we love someone or something whom we cannot grasp and we cannot see? It makes me wonder, is loving God truly a second-hand emotion, as Tina Turner might have put it? How does one verify that they are loving God, after all, and not merely the idea or the emotion of loving the divine? Is loving God well accompanied by butterflies in our tummies, similar to those we might have felt when we met that special someone for the first time on our very first date? Or is loving God something more than butterflies in our tummies? Does loving God well mean that we believe the correct things about God? or about Jesus, or about the Holy Spirit? Is loving God simpler than that? Is its meaning, perhaps, right under our proverbial noses and so close to us and so obvious that we often miss it or just plain step over it? One of my greatest fears in faithfully interpreting any passage from the Bible is assuming that I already know what it means before I ever use the tools that seminary provided me with in unearthing its historical context, and seeing what some of our spiritual ancestors thought about a particular text. Interestingly enough, as I began once again to dig into this text, what I learned this week is that historical interpretations, both of Deuteronomy 6, 5, the source for this teaching, and Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, are quite brief. The commentaries on them are almost absent from Christian history, in in any kind of historical manner. And so to say this bluntly, one doesn't get the impression that the passage of Scripture that Christians have come to call the greatest commandment has been given very much prominence at all in the big picture conversations around Christianity. That's disturbing to me. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That sums it up, Jesus says. Here's cliff notes on the Bible. And then no one ever talks about it again. At least throughout the pages of history. Although there are a few hints, which I'll share with you, at how people have come to wrestle with these verses over the centuries here. And the interpretations of these verses, 
In the Middle Ages, love of God was often understood as knowledge and obedience. Calvin, the great reformer, speaks of the love of God almost exclusively in connection with keeping the commandments of the first tablet of the Decalogue, otherwise known as the first of the Ten Commandments. Can anyone name it off the top of your head? You shall have oh, no other gods before me. The interpretations influenced by the Reformation also tend to emphasize knowledge as a decisive element of loving God. Bullinger, for example, states that the love of God comes from faith, but that faith is knowing God and says there is no loving without knowing. Now, if all of this is sounding a bit intellectual and theoretical, you're catching the drift I'm floating your way. Even a more modern view of what loving God means in our Western culture, the more modern views tended to focus in Western culture and Western Christianity on the love of God as essentially cognitive in experience. References to emotional dimensions for the love of God are much rarer in the historical interpretations of what it means in the Christian tradition to love God. For St. Augustine, part of love was enjoying the fellowship with the beloved. So then, loving God is the highest happiness, according to Augustine, and is best experienced as a community. Now, I'm not a huge Augustine fan, but on this, I think old Augie got something right. I happen to believe he was at least pointing us in the right direction, a, ba a better balance, perhaps, between Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity, so without drawing these lessons out from history too much longer, lest I lose some of you, I searched for what some of the mystics had to say about their understanding of what it means to love God and to look at these verses we read just a moment ago. And of course, feelings, no surprise, play a major role in mysticism. For example, with Bernard of Clairvaux. Also, for Meister Eckhart, who taught that loving God means, finally, the experience of unity with God. God and I, Eckhart said, we are one. And through knowledge, I take God into myself. Through love, on the other hand, I enter into God. God and I, in such activity, we are one. He said, God acts and I become. So if all of this seems to fall either a bit flat or just barely to interest you, uh, I don't want to leave you wanting for more when it comes to grasping what it really means to, to love God. Uh, and you're feeling a little bit like, okay, so what? Then you're feeling exactly what I felt as I did the research this past week. Uh, something so central, something so vital, something so paramount to our faith as to have become known as the greatest commandment should have a bit more teeth to it than all of this. So I continued in my exegetical digging and aided by my Bible software, I pulled up the Greek text for the New Testament and I took a little look-see and peek at the word for love. And both the word and the text where it says, love God, as well as the word for love when it says, love your neighbor, guess what? Same word. Now, it's a word that church folk have likely heard from the pulpit or else in Sunday school class someplace before. It's the word Agapao, coming from the Greek word for love, agape. 
And after a quick search for the ways this word is used and interpreted in the rest of Hebrew as well as Christian scriptures, I felt both a huge relief uh, as well as more frustration. Because what I discovered is that this Greek word agapao has multiple meanings. Same word, same letter, in the same order, but different definitions. And by the way, anytime someone says to me, but David, the Bible says clearly dot, 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 I want to start snickering because they probably haven't dug into this and said, well, love is love. Well, no, it's not. Love might be love to English-speaking people, but love wasn't just love. There were many shades of this to Greek-speaking people. And the combination of, of, of difficulty becomes when you take a Hebrew scripture originally and then transliterate it into Greek, you, you run the risk of losing all kinds of things. So without belaboring that point anymore, what I basically boiled down to was I saw that in the way that these words were used in this, what was known in, in Hebrew scriptures as a Shema, what I noticed is there were basically two choices, most commonly, that people were faced with when they were determined, what does it mean to love God and to love neighbor, like this teaching is telling us. One definition had to do with holding God or another human being in high esteem, in our minds, a place in our hearts, if you will, but theoretical in nature, an idea of love. In other words, with reverence or respect, we hold someone dear in our heart. That means that in this sense of the word, on one hand, one definition, that we love God that way or that we love our neighbor that way. But another definition, another definition had an altogether different take on expressing what it was to love. And the other love, agapao, was defined as a demonstration of this devotion and esteem. So it went one step further beyond just the idea of it to demonstrating it before it becomes love. So there was action combining with this notion of reverence. It took it a little bit further. And so I think it is safe to say that Western culture has largely focused on the first one of those definitions. We've made loving God in our culture out to be something that happens inside here or inside here. It is not limited to our minds, but you know, because we're compassionate people, um, we've allowed God to creep into the seat of the human emotions, which we all know is the heart, right? The invisible places in our hearts and in our minds where we capture this feeling, this this way that we feel about someone else or about God. But still, this kind of loving God is mostly invisible. Now this works in the Greek world in which the New Testament was born. This works into a culture that was permeated with philosophical ramblings and gaining intellectual knowledge was seen as the most superior type of human expression in the West. But there's a big problem with that. Jesus wasn't a Greek philosopher. He was a Jew. He was a rabbi. And Christianity was not first a Greek philosophical faith, but a Jewish sect. So here's my argument. Doesn't that sound violent for a pastor to argue with themselves from the pulpit? Loving God in a more Jewish understanding of this concept, leans much more heavily towards the tangible demonstration of one's devotion by action, as opposed to merely a mental concept. 
And this is precisely why I believe that Jesus was quoting the Shema, the very centerpiece of morning and evening Jewish prayer. And it was his intention, I believe, for his followers to understand that you cannot love God without loving one's neighbor. No matter how high you esteem God in your mind, if you're treating your neighbor like crud, you're not loving God very well. I, uh, I owe a great deal of the thoughts I'll share with you from this point forward in this sermon on what it means to love God faithfully to the late, great Dr. Marcus Borg. I thought it appropriate to draw on his wisdom. He was on my mind today on All Saints Day, and not only because I respect his work as a scholar, but because once in my own journey as a father of two teenage boys, I wrote Dr. Borg and poured out my heart to him over one of my sons experiencing what some might call a crisis of faith. And much to my surprise, almost immediately, Dr. Borg wrote me back a much lengthier letter than I even wrote him. And he said many things that we don't have time for, but one I will never, ever forget. He said, David, we both know as theologically trained persons that what your son thinks about God or his faith, that's important. But what matters the very most is whether or not your son knows that you think he's important, that you love him regardless of what he thinks about God or his faith. Perhaps it would be wise to find ways daily to demonstrate that no matter what he thinks about himself or his faith, you love him. And you can best do that with your actions. As long as I live, I'll never forget his advice. Love was more than a theory to Dr. Borg, and that's why I find his interpretation of Matthew 22 so compelling when it comes to talking about what it means to love God. Dr. Marcus Borg sums up loving God based on this Matthean text with a couple of statements. First, that loving God means learning as a Christian to love what God loves. Now, a quick trip to one of the most famous texts about the love of God is, is found in John 3.16. And it's actually the same word, for God so loved, what? Oh. And so, for this basic statement, Dr. Borg went to this verse and said, God loves the world, not just me, not just you, not just Christians, not even just human beings, but the whole of creation. And, of course, this is also the central point of the Genesis stories of creation, after each day in the six-day creation stories, we are told God saw that it was good. And at the very end, that God saw it was very good. Now, of course, God doesn't love the world simply as it is. God has, to use a phrase from Robert Frost, a lover's quarrel with the world. God loves the world and yet wills that it be a better world for all. And so if we are going to learn to love in practice, not just in concept, what God loves, we have work to do ourselves, the work of transformation. It's a process of growing up in our faith. I've learned that just because I get a year older, which is coming up soon, that doesn't mean I'm necessarily more mature. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? There are sometimes I hope they go hand in hand, but looking at my own life, I'm not always convinced I'm learning everything that I should be learning. 
And I think it works that way in our faith. Just because we get another year older on paper doesn't mean we're learning more about ourselves or about the world or how to love what God loves. And so Christianity is a way and a path of transformation. And I actually don't think it's very much about beliefs, though there are some. But the earliest name of the Christian movement in the years that followed Easter, according to the book of Acts, beginning in the ninth chapter, was the way, or followers of the way. Now, in transformation, therefore, it involves practice. A process of becoming more and more deeply centered in God requires an attention to this relationship. And it's not as mysterious as we make it out to be at times, I don't think. How are we doing in loving God? Well, the answer can be found by how well we're demonstrating this so-called love to other human beings around us. Because the love of God and the love of neighbor to Jesus, I believe, and to the ancestors of ours in the Jewish faith are inseparably linked. How does my relationship with God grow? In some ways, our relationship with God is like a human relationship. It deepens and grows by paying attention to it, spending time on it, being fully present, and this may look like traditional worship, or it may not. It may look like collective prayer. It may look like individual prayer. It may look like some other practices that I don't have the knowledge or the, uh, of to share with you. But these practices are not in existence because God needs them. All of these various spiritual practices that have enriched our lives are available because they lead us toward a path of transformation when we make ourselves fully present and available to grow. And the final statement that Dr. Borg made on this text and on loving God is that not only is loving God about learning to love the things that God loves, but loving God is also about being a part of a community that exists for the purpose of transformation. Church then, the Christian community, for those of us in this faith tradition, is about providing a place, a means to the end for transformation. Seeing the church as a community of transformation and reformation is so vital in our development to loving God and one another. And so those of us who grew up, it's part of this growing up thing, means we realize, hey, those of us who grew up in Western culture actually grew up with values that are very, very different from some of the elements that are most central to the Christian faith and to the Bible for that matter. And so Christian community is about becoming involved in a process of reorienting our social goals for the world as well as for ourselves. So that our sense of self, our sense of identity is shaped by the involvement we have with one another in this community. So having the so-called correct beliefs has very little to do with loving God. Having the so-called correct doctrines when you think about it they have very, that has very little transformative power because you can believe all of the correct things and still be quite untransformed you can believe all of the so-called correct things and as we say in texas you can still be hateful it is finding a community of practice and transformation that changes us and transforms us and it's also about passion. And over the years, I have become increasingly convinced of this. You've heard people say, 
Listen, youngster, when you're getting in college or about to graduate high school or college, just what am I going to do with my life? That's the question on all of our minds. And usually someone in our family who loves us and wants to settle us down and also get rid of us will say, well, just go follow your passion. Just get out there and follow your passion. But you know something? Do we really have any other choice? Do we? I'm not sure. I suppose we do. Jesus put it this way, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. St. Augustine put it this way, our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in thee. The loving God, it's about noticing God's passion for the world and becoming passionate about the same things, about a transformed world, a world of justice and peace where everyone really does have enough. And loving God is about participating in God's passion. This is what we're called to do. So in a sense, loving God is about changing the world. It's, it's as simple and challenging as that all at the same time. And it's a way of life. Not just the pitter-patter one feels in the deep recesses of one heart, one's heart when one has asked Jesus to live there. Not just the finally formulated theological concepts of loving God that one carries around in the deep recesses of our minds. It's about demonstrating our love for God by working to change the world into the type of world that God loves. And we will never do this perfectly. Not in our own demonstrations of love or the end result of our labors. Nevertheless, we must never stop actively participating in the many works of love. Love, for Christians, is not only the greatest commandment, but loving God is how we experience transformation and how we transform the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.